Good morning, church. Amen. Oh, what a wonderful time of worship. This is always the problem at ministering here at Shofar, right? I'm completely undone at the end of worship, and then I'm supposed to get up and speak. And it takes me always a moment just to get myself all kind of gathered together again. So I'm going to ask you a help with it just for a moment. Would you pray with me? Uh, of course, I pray to to worship the Lord, but I use the prayer just to get myself ready once again. I'm undone by this just extraordinary spirit of worship that is here this morning. Father, you are in heaven. You are enthroned in the heavens. We honor your name. We hallow your name. We respect and fear your name. May your kingdom come, may your will be done in this place today as it is in heaven. Give us today what we need. Would you purify our hearts and separate from us our selfish ambition and desires and, and fill us with a deep sense of what is necessary. Would you forgive us our many trespasses? Teach us to live a life of repentance before you. May we have contrite and broken hearts before you. Give us the courage and the strength to forgive those that have sinned against us, knowing and understanding that our sin is always greater towards you. Deliver us from all evil. And lead us into places of righteousness for your holy name's sake. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, not only now, but forever and ever. What a glorious and holy, magnificent God you are. We worship you, Lord. Amen. And amen. There's nothing sadder for me than to see a life wasted. It is not that important how we start, but it is important how we finish. I have a very good friend that works for a very famous evangelist, which will remain unnamed at this point. And I try to see him once a year at least speak by phone or at least um, do a Skype. Uh, but a while back, I saw him. He lives in Texas. And I was, doing, I was speaking at some conference there, and we, we happened to meet. And, and typically, as I met him, he asked me the same question he's asked me for 32 years. And here's the question. He said, what is it that you are trusting God for? What is it that you are believing and I gave him the same answer I've given him for the last 25 years, knowing that it's going to make him crazy. He was expecting me to say that I am trusting God for great finances or a new car or a second home or whatever. But here's my answer. I am trusting God for a good death. And what do I mean by that? 
I'm not trusting God to die today, but this is important, folks. Yes, let me just clarify there for a moment. Although I'm quite ready to go. I do want to say this to you. There's nothing more important than how we finish. And so this is what I say. I say to him, James, I am trusting God for a good Christian death. And what is a good Christian death? That moment that we are ready to let go of everything that we can see and feel and touch. And in faith, with no fear, step into eternity saying, I have done what you've called me to do. The sermon that I want to provide this morning comes out of somewhat of a difficult time in my own life. In the last number of months, in America and around the world, there's been very public defections from Christianity by famous Christian leaders. And it really hit me hard in the last six months because two of the people that publicly renounced their faith were people that I have met, people that I know somewhat, people that I respect and that I honor. And as I started to read one in America and one in Australia, and as I started to listen to what they had to say about why they no longer considered themselves followers of Christ, it boiled down to one basic reason. And this is what they both said. They said, when we look around at this world, there's just too much suffering. This doesn't make sense. And I started to cry out to God and, and ask the question that we all should ask. What is it that they are missing? What is it that they cannot see? I was reminded of a beautiful and true story of a very famous American missionary who spent most of his life in India ministering and giving his life away for the gospel. And at the end of his life, this is the early 1920s, He's sailing back on a boat to America. And as he arrived in the port of New York City, there was a famous actor on the boat with him that came from England. And as the actor stepped down out of the boat, there were thousands of people waving their hands and, and getting really excited and welcoming him. And there was a band and streamers and balloons. And the missionary wrote and he said, as I watched this fanfare of welcoming this man home, he said, my heart sank within me. There was nobody to welcome me, nobody to give an applaud for everything that I've done. And, 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 and he said to the Lord, Lord, but there's no one here to greet me. I've given my life maybe in vain. And he said he heard as clear as a bell the whisper of the Holy Spirit saying to him, my son, you are not home yet. Not home yet. What is it that these leaders have missed? Jesus, during an extraordinarily difficult time, spoke to his followers. And let me just stop for a moment. So <clears throat> there are many things that I'm not gifted to do. And I think wisdom in life is to realize what you're gifted in and what you are not. Uh, I am not gifted in shopping. Uh, however, my wife has received that gift in great measures, 
right? <laughs> She's extraordinarily gifted. And, and, and the problem is my wife doesn't like to shop alone. Now, <clears throat> I can't do the shoe things because that takes two days. Uh, I'm not so great at the clothing. But ever so often, I will go grocery shopping with her, which I have to tell you is pure, absolute torture. And just a couple of weeks, I, she, and she always tricks me, right? So she says, sweetie, she's now Southern Italian, I think. She's, I say, sweetie, let's, let's, I just need to go to the shop. I just need to get a couple of things, right? Now, I need to remind her that a couple means two, right? <laughs> Not South African couple, which means a ton. And um, it's taken me a while, by the way, in living in the United States and realizing that South African English and American English are two different languages, <laughs> Have you noticed that in South Africa, if you say, I'm coming now, it doesn't mean now. <laughs> Have you noticed that? And if you say, I'm coming now, now, that could be an hour. <laughs> I used to do this all the time to Americans, just confuse them. And I would say, I'm coming now, now. And then, and then I come 30 minutes later and they said, you said you were coming now. I said, I said, I would come now, now. That doesn't mean now, right? <laughs> that means 30 minutes later. Anyway, so we get into the shop, and, and here I am, and, and of course, I'm just in my inner world here, and I'm standing behind people that are complaining about taxes. And I, of course, turned around, and my gift kicked in for saying the right things at the wrong time. And I started to have a conversation with them about taxes in the first century, um, <laughs> which my wife just kind of tapped me on my shoulder and say, not helpful. Not useful right now, right? Because these people were just looking at me as if I was crazy. But folks, let me say to you, when, when, Jesus, when Jesus came to Israel, he came to, to this nation at the, one of the darkest times in their existence. We tend to forget this. When we look at the horror of crucifixion, we tend to forget that this was a common experience for almost 300 years in the nation of Israel. At different times, they were occupied. They were occupied by different groups. One example is in the year 176 before Christ, a Greek ruler by the name of Antioch IV Epiphanes. There's a little joke in his name. Epiphanes means wise man. The Jews used to call him Epimenes, which means madman. And uh, the guy was really mad. He marched into Jerusalem, sacrificed pigs in the temple, defiled the temple, and in one day crucified 4,000 people. He would crucify women and hang their babies on their necks. You, you cannot imagine the horror. Speak about tax in the first century. It's an area of interest for me. Um, during this time, the Romans would, would tax the poor more than the wealthy. And, and scholars believe that at some point, uh, the, the tax rate for the poor during the time of Jesus was close to 70%. 70% of what they made had to go to Rome. It's an extraordinarily difficult time. And in this context, listen to one of the things that Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19. He makes the following statement. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. We moth and rust destroy and we thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. And when I started to listen to these leaders that, that said when they look at this world, it's too difficult, there's too much going on, I, I needed to ask the question, what is it that they are missing? And I believe what they were missing is an eternal perspective. And this morning, church, I want to say to you that life doesn't make sense unless we have eyes of eternity. I'm entitled to sermon, a future beyond imagination, a future beyond what we can imagine. The Apostle Paul said something very similar, echoing the words of Christ. In the first letter that he wrote to the Corinthian church, chapter 2, verse 9, listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He says, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, that is what God has prepared for those who love Him. Church, this morning I'm going to say to you that life doesn't make sense unless we have an eternal perspective. It's such a wonderful threat that started to happen last night and this morning during the worship set. This beautiful, beautiful expectation echoing the words of Christ may heaven come down. May we understand what heaven is ultimately about. This morning for a few moments, I, I want to share with you what I think this perspective should or could look like. I'm going to go to the very last text in our New Testament. And forgive me just for a moment, the professor needs to come out just for about five minutes, if that's okay. Just give a little bit of background here. The last text in our New Testament is a book that is sometimes called the revelation of Jesus Christ given to the Apostle John. Sometimes, however, it is called the Apocalypse of John. And this word apocalypse is a tremendously important word because it's a biblical word. It is in actual fact the English translation or transliteration of a Greek word. And in the book of Revelation, this is how the text starts. It says, this is the Apocalypse of John. And church, what does that word apocalypse mean? It comes from two Greek words that are placed together. But ultimately, it means this. It means an unveiling. It is when the curtain is pulled back and you are shown what's really going on. And here's the problem with contemporary Christianity. We have become so pragmatic, so rooted in this earth that we sometimes are unable to see what's really and truly going on. And it's in this context that John receives the unveiling. That's the literal word. The unveiling, the pulling back of the curtain. John, as you remember, were the youngest of the disciples, we think. And we know quite a fair bit about what happened to him. He's the only one of the 12 that dies of a natural death. But it doesn't mean he didn't go through suffering. It is always interesting to me. You know, I'm, I'm a bit of a theological mutt, as my wife would say. Um, somebody asked me the other day, well, what, what are you? You know, what, what's going on here? You know, 
And, and I will often say, just Christian, just Christian. That's okay. That's enough, you know, follower of Christ. But sometimes people want to be technical. You know, folks, if you live and work with theologians, pray for me. <clears throat> Um, it's very difficult to lead theologians, by the way. It's a little bit like herding cats. Um, uh, but as you know, you know, <clears throat> I am a cat whisperer, so I'm, I'm, I do very well with them. But the theologians will ask me, I hired somebody, a new guy, just the other day, and he said, all right, all right, uh, no, no, you're Christian, that's great, and it's wonderful. What are you? Tell, tell me. And so I came up with who I think I might be, and I said, well, I think I'm a reluctant Calvinist, uh, with Pentecostal orientations and Franciscan obsessions. And uh, <laughs> my wife says, confused. <laughs> right there. But John is the youngest. And, and, and the reason why I'm sharing this, it's always interesting to me, the traditions that I come from often think that suffering is not part of the Christian journey. Church, <laughs> I don't know how to say this politely, <laughs> but let me rather quote the Apostle Paul from his letter to the church in Philippi. And, and the Apostle Paul says, not only has it been granted to you to believe in his name, but to suffer for his sake. Yeah, I, I thought I would write a book called Call to Suffer, but my publisher says nobody will buy it. And um, <clears throat> so I decided to write a book on laziness. And he said, well, most people are too lazy to buy the book. So that's another problem, right? Um, by the way, the book on laziness is coming out at some point. Yes, if anybody will buy it, that's, that's another question. But John is one of the youngest disciples. We know what happens to him. He, 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 he dies of a natural death, but it doesn't mean he didn't go through suffering. The Apostle John, we have two traditions. The one tradition said that he was boiled in a pot of water and survived. Just on a personal note, I've said to the Lord, if, I'm, if I am, am to be boiled, I better die. <laughs> I don't know about you. No amount of counseling can get you through that experience right there. Right? It would cost too much. But apparently he was boiled. He survived. Another tradition said when he was captured, a soldier took a sword and cut out his eyes. And when he received the apocalypse, he was blind. And a scribe is writing this down. But what happened to John? We know that after the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, a number of years later, after Pentecost, John moves to Ephesus. Today, Turkey. Folks, let me not get started on Turkey. Turkey is going through some difficult times right now. But Turkey was a Christian country. And let me tell you, before Christ returns... Turkey is going to be a prominent Christian country again. We need to have faith for the nations to come to the Lord. And he moves to Turkey. He, he settles in Ephesus and, and, he, and, and he pastors seven churches in that area. In actual fact, John might have been the first pastor of a multi-site church ever. There you go, seven um, our pastor has this vision in, in our church. He will often say we, we live in an area called Hampton Roads. There are seven cities close by. And he says, seven churches in seven cities. And I didn't have the courage to say to him, not the first. <clears throat> this is something that has happened before. And John is the pastor and he travels from church to church and he encourages him. He takes Mary, the mother of Jesus, with him. Because remember John's gospel. Um, you remember uh, Jesus said to, to John, take care of my mother. And, and he did. He, he literally took Mary with him and they, and they both died there. 
But at the height, at the height of the ministry of the church, there, there rose an extraordinary occupation and, and persecution by the Roman Empire. And John is captured and he's taken to Patmos. Now today, Patmos, small little island in Greece, beautiful. Everybody goes there for vacation. Lovely, beautiful. Um, at, at that time, there's nothing there. It's a stone quarry. And there's a little bit of cruelty in this. On a clear day, on a very clear day, there is a mountain, one little mountain on, on, on Patmos. And if you climb that mountain on a clear day, you can see the coastline of Ephesus. And you can imagine what this was like for John. Here he is, and he has a deep concern for the church. And, and folks, by the way, the book of Revelation starts with John praying for the church. He said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Imagine what this is like. He, he knows that the churches are worshiping and he is not there. By the way, folks, there are so many people that have a great desire to have a message for the church, but no concern for the church. This is, this is, this is what we teach the church that I serve. We choose our leaders from the prayer meeting. We number our church, not by the people that come to church. We number our members by how many people are there in the prayer meeting. And our pastor says, I don't know you until I've heard you pray. I don't know who you are until I've prayed with you. Now, I will tell you, I, I think our church has got too many prayer meetings. <clears throat> it's true. We have close to 20 prayer meetings a week. There's one every single day. And uh, I'm the, <clears throat> the lead elder in our community. And, and I want to tell you, if I miss a prayer meeting, I get a letter in the post from my pastor saying, now, dear Cornet, let me remind you, <laughs> elders need to set the example in prayer. And there we are. But John is praying. And church, it's in the midst of this prayer that he receives a number of visions. And I want to stop here for a moment and say to you, that it's only when the truth is revealed to us that we can make sense of this world that we live in. We were never created to simply and merely exist in the world that we are in now. We were created to have eternity in our hearts and for our eyes to be open to see. And John receives a number of extraordinary revelations. And the last two chapters of this book contains the purest description of our future. Chapters 21 and 22. But this morning, I don't have enough time. I, I just want to go to one text here. And if you brought your Bibles, I wonder if you would be so kind as to go to Revelation 22. And I'm going to read five verses and very quickly propose five truths that we must hold close to ourselves if we are going to finish strong. If we are going to have a faith that will endure to the end. And in Revelation 22 verses 1 to 5, John writes, Then the angel showed me. I wish I had enough time to just spend just a few hours in that first phrase. Church, Christianity is not something we can figure out with our minds entirely. It's not something that, that through reason alone we can make sense. 
Christianity has always been something that is revealed to us. The Apostle Paul writes to a number of churches in the province of Galatia, and he says, brothers, I want you to know that what I'm preaching to you, no man taught me. The Lord Jesus himself revealed, there's that word, apocalypse, revealed this to me. He pulled back the curtain and showed me what's really going on. And I want to just take these five verses very quickly. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. I wish I had enough time to go into this. Notice tree, by the way, bears fruit every season. It's never out of season. It's extraordinary. It then goes on and it says, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever. What is the unveiling that we need in order to finish strong? If you've ever read the apocalypse, you will, know, you will know that it says over and over and over again, to he who endures to the end. The only way that we can finish strong, folks, is to realize, to have a revelation where God pulls back and say, all right, let me show you what's truly and really going on. Five extraordinary truths about our future, a future beyond imagination. Firstly, folks, we will one day live in the presence of God where we will have access to the very source of life. What does this mean? I'm going to say a few radical things that might be provocative, but I truly believe them to be true. We were created to live forever. Recently, <clears throat> I turned 50. Yes, I know, I know, don't laugh about it. It's a difficult thing. My son reminded me that I'm more than halfway through. And when I said to him, and when I turned 50, that's exactly, that's what he wrote in my, in my birthday card. You know, you're more than halfway through. And when I said to him, how in the world is possible? He said to me, let's do the math. Let's think about this for a moment. And now that he has informed me that I'm overweight and he drags me to gym every day, I, well, not every day, I go every second day, I want to say to you, and I hate every second of it. When you turn 50, I want to say to you, you get up in the morning, everything hurts. Everything is an absolute and total pain. And, and, and here's the issue. We sometimes just accept this to be normal. I reminded my son the other day that ultimately on earth, there's nobody that's really old. If you think about this. Folks, we've been created to live forever. And there will come a day that we will have access to the very life, the life that created this universe 
We're going to live for billions and billions and billions of years if time exists in eternity. And we might look back at the 18, 90, 100 years that we lived here, and maybe that 100 years was full of suffering and difficult. And maybe we will turn to one another two million years from now and say, do you remember that time? Maybe, maybe this earth is just kindergarten. Maybe it's just the beginning. And folks, what happens when you realize that we have been created to be alive and that there will come a day where we will have resurrected bodies and we will live forever? It's a little bit of perspective. It's a little bit of perspective. For me, one of the saddest things about living in America is the amount of children that are slaughtered in the womb every year. And this is something that I take some interest in. And I'm involved in a number of advocacy groups. And people often ask me, why in the world are you so passionately against abortion? And folks, let me just say to you, if there's anybody here that's ever gone through an abortion, the pain of the mother is always the worst pain. But God is a God of healing. And I want to say this to you, that even though I look at the millions of children, I think the last count is close to 70 million babies have been aborted in America since Roe versus Wade. But do you know those children are not lost? They will live eternally in the presence of the Lord. And one of the things that we need to realize, even if we take care of the poor and the sick and hold people as they die, we need to be reminded of this fact that they indeed will one day live forever. It gives us some perspective to reach out to those folks and share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, not only does this text say there's a river of life that flows from the very throne of God. Secondly, it speaks of a tree of life that borders both sides of this river that yields its fruit in every month, every season. But listen to this. It says, and the leaves of this tree are for the healing of the nations. Right now, America as a nation is going through an extraordinarily difficult time. And the time that we are going through this increasing um, Tension between people. I intentionally live and work in a multi-ethnic community. We have one of the very rare churches in our area that is 50% black and 50% white. Intentionally. And here's the very difficult thing. You look at the tension. Now, people use the word racial tension. I intentionally never refer to race, when I speak to people, there's one race, the human race, just one. But there are different ethnicities. There are different groups of people. And the only solution, the only solution to the tension that's between ethnicities at times is when our eyes are open and we see the beauty of every nation. One of the greatest recoveries that the church is experiencing right now is to have a vision for every nation. I think it was yesterday or the day before, 
that the previous president of Zimbabwe passed away. And I have some history of Zimbabwe. My father actually grew up in Zimbabwe. And I remember visiting this country many, many times. And I'm going to say to you, and it's one of the most beautiful places on the face of the earth. But one of the greatest difficulties have been to see the decline of this, this great nation. And to see the suffering. And to seeing this nation come to a standstill right now. And I remember a number of years ago, I, I met with a missionary from Zimbabwe that was leaving Zimbabwe and, and, and he left all despondent and angry. And he said, he said, Zimbabwe is finished. He says, the last person must just switch off the lights when they leave. And I rebuked him and I said, you don't have the eyes of God. Church, do you know there will come a day in eternity where every nation, every tongue, every tribe will stand before the Father and they will be healed. The purpose of nations, folks, is not only in this experience, but in all of eternity. There will come a day where every nation will stand before God and be healed. Don't be quick to throw away people. God's not done with them yet. At our church, we have a text right at the back that says, for every tribe, every tongue, every nation. When we start to have that vision, it motivates us to go. When God opens our eyes and we see the beauty of what he has created, it's absolutely extraordinary. Thirdly, this text continues on and it says that heaven will be a place where holiness reigns. This is literally what the text says. It says there'll be nothing there that will be a curse because the throne of the Lamb and of God will be there. Oh, church, I want to stop for a moment. I know by the Spirit of the Lord that there are many people here in this place today that are struggling. And the greatest struggle is what I call our secret sins. Those silent storms that nobody talks about. The things that we fight, that we can almost never bring into the light. And by the Spirit of the Lord today, I want to say to you, never give up the fight. Many of us get to the place where we get so tired of fighting with our sin that we finally at one point just give up and learn to live with the sin. And we go from a gospel of sin transformation to a gospel of sin management. Where we don't get rid of our sins, but we just simply manage it from moment to moment. Church, we need to recognize that God's eternal call for us is to be holy and to be pure. I love the Apostle Paul. In the letter that he wrote to the church in Rome, it's one of the most provocative letters. And ever so often I take students on trips um, to Italy and we speak about the first 200 years of Christianity in Rome, which is an area of interest for me. And often we stand in the Circus Maximus where so many Christians were slaughtered and killed. And we think that Paul was not murdered very far from there. And we stand there 
and it's really extraordinary. And I read to them the first few words from this letter. And then in that first few letters, listen to what Paul says. Paul says to all who are in Rome, I'm going to say to you two things. You are loved by God and called to be holy. Loved by God and called to be holy. I want to say to you folks, we have to get to the place where we do not lose the vision of holiness. And today I want to stand in front of each of you, including, and Pretoria, please forgive me, I forgot to greet you. The Heilige Stadt, yes. Uh, Pretoria, God loves you. But let me stand in front of you and say to you, you are loved by God, but listen to this. You are called to be holy. So many of us battle and battle and battle for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And folks, we at some point just give up. Give up. The text then continues on and says, not only will heaven be a place where we have access to the source of life, a place where nations are healed, a place where holiness reigns, but listen to this number four. It says, it is a place where his servants will worship him. I love the worship that we've experienced last night and this morning. And the reason why it is so meaningful is that we have a little glimpse of what's waiting for us, a tiny little glimpse. But I want to say to you folks, as great as this experience is, it is still not what we will experience in eternity. We were ultimately created to worship Him every part of our being. And there's going to come a time and a place that we will step into eternity and we will experience the reason why we were created. I love the language here. It says that these, his servants, his servants will worship him. His servants. The church that I serve in right now, I've joined 10 years ago. And I want to quickly say this to you. I've got about five minutes to finish here. They're going to bring up that dreaded cart that says stop. <laughs> and, and I'm going to be obedient and I'm going to stop right there. But just let me say to you, the church that I joined, I joined 10 years ago. And, and the first service that I went to, uh, there was a visiting pastor speaking and he was preaching heresy. What is it that he said? And I remember he sat there and he, and he had what I call metaphorical confusion. He said, I am not a servant of Jesus. I'm his son. And of course, you want to tap him on his shoulder and say, son and servant. All right, both. He says, he says, one day when I stand, and it got really bad. He says, one day when I stand in front of Jesus, and Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. He says, I will interrupt him and say, I'm not your servant. I'm your son. Let me tell you why I remained at the church. Our church has got a tradition that some of our folks preach with the pastor. And there was a lady sitting in front of me, this beautiful, regal, noble African-American lady. And, and, and she, she was preaching with the pastor. And she got a white hanky out and she was waving at him. And this is what she said. And when he said that, she got up and she said, Oh, pastor, you were doing so well. You were with Jesus, but now you're gone. Come back, come back. And I said, I can stay at this church. 
if the congregation is wise enough to confront heresy outright, I will be there. But church, it doesn't end there. Let me quickly share with you two more truths. The text then says, and this is number five, that we will see him. This universe is so large, so large that I doubt that we will ever leave our solar system. It might not physically be possible. The next star system is so far away that if we could travel by the speed of light, it might take us multiple generations. If we could get close at least to that. And there are billions and billions of star systems in this one galaxy and there are billions and billions of galaxies in this universe. And now scholars say there might be multiple universes. And yet it's too small for God. He created all of this in a split second. And we're going to see him and know him. And lastly, church, it says, and I don't fully understand this. It's a bit of a mystery to me. And we shall reign with him forever. Look at your neighbor and don't say this to them, but just look at them and think in your heart, you were not created to fail. You were created to reign. No matter what you are going through in your life right now, there's eternity waiting for you. Let me wrap up. Church, life can be hard. And sometimes we go through struggles. And even sometimes because we decide to follow Jesus, there's some difficulty that waits for us. Church, this morning I want to say to you, You are not home yet. And in order for us to finish well, we need a special revelation where Jesus comes and pulls back the veil. You were created to experience life. I've got five extra minutes. By the grace of the Lord, yes. You are now my favorite person (laughs) until 12 o'clock. All right, then I'll choose someone else. Um, You were created to experience life. You were created with a vision for the nations to be healed. You were created to be holy. Church, I want to say this to you. Your future is holiness. You shall be holy. God has decided this. When you struggle... When you are tempted by Satan, you turn around and you say, I shall be holy. He has created me for this. Our future will be a future where we will be servants in all of eternity, worshiping him. And we shall know him and reign with him forever. Jesus pulls all of this together. In that extraordinary prayer that he taught his disciples. Our Father, who are enthroned in heaven, we respect and honor your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done here. In your life, in your family's life, at work, in school, in church, as it is in heaven. As it is in heaven.
Church, there's a future that's waiting for us beyond imagination. Place your treasure there. Put your heart there. And you will finish well. God bless you. Thank you so much.